This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hi guys, my name is Sammy J. I have been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Atlanta has been besieged by rain for what feels like something around 45 days, but it's really only been two weeks. Two weeks is long enough for me. And everything is flooding. But you know what's worse than flooding, Sarah? I think I have an idea. Being rained on with volcanic ash, which is what happened to Pompeii in AD 79. Pompeii was founded by the Oscans in the 6th to 7th century BC. We're not sure. It was near Naples in the region of Campania. It was very fertile, lots of olives and grain and sheep. Sarah and I are very fond of sheep. We like sheep. And it was Greek for a while, but then Rome took over in about 290 BC, and they rebelled in 90 BC, but Sulla beat them, and they became part of the Roman Empire. But by 79 AD, uh, Pompeii is this bustling cosmopolitan port city. It has extremely fertile soil, which uh, unfortunately that's because it's built under a freaking volcano, <laughs> but it's good for agriculture while it lasts, you know. Um, they have an aqueduct that supplies fountains in the city and homes, uh, the wool industry because of the sheep. Everything's going really nice. They have vineyards. Um, I, I like this note a lot. Plenty the elder said that Pompeian wine gives you a really bad hangover. So <laughs> so none of that for take us. Take it easy on the Pompeian wine. Um, but there start to be some warning signs around this time that Mount Vesuvius uh, is starting to be active again. There's a huge earthquake 17 years earlier. And actually, at the time of the volcano explosion, the town hasn't even quite recovered from this earthquake. No, they're still rebuilding. And... In the year of the volcano, there's small earth, a small earthquake, and the wells go dry, and the animals are reported to be acting strangely. And the people notice strange waves in the ocean that they're not used to seeing. So there's an undercurrent of something that's not quite right going on. So this brings us to August 24th in the year 79, which is when everything starts to go down. And we know a lot about what happened on the day of the explosion because of an account written by Pliny the Younger to his friends some years afterwards. 
Um, he wrote that he saw a cloud of unusual size and appearance, which reminded him of, a, him of a pine tree, for it rose to a great height on a sort of trunk and then split off into branches. And what he was describing actually is later termed a Plinian eruption, which is a huge column of gas and ash that's shot up into the stratosphere by an enormous volcano eruption. Such as this one with Mount Vesuvius. So August 24th, a column of smoke appears above the mountain. And people are uneasy because ash and pumice starts falling on Pompeii. And a bunch of people get the hell out of town. 80% of the people try to try to make it. That's not to say all of them survive, but um, the people who are taking this as a bad sign, ash and pumice falling, leave. The column grows to 18 miles high and blocks out the sun. And there are neighboring cities around here, too, that are noticing it. It's not just Pompeii, even though that's what you usually hear about. We've also got Herculaneum and what are the others? Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this one right. Stabae? Stabae? And um, Tori and Anciata, among other little tiny towns. So there, there's a lot going on in this immediate area. So the ash and pumice are still falling, and they're falling deeper. People are watching this column grow, and more people start grabbing their jewelry and their belongings and trying to flee the city. But at this point, it's too late. Yeah, because by nightfall, the shower of ash and pumice has gotten denser and deadlier, and it covers the city nine feet deep, which collapses roofs. And uh, some of the the bodies later discovered are found uh, sheltering under a stairwell that's collapsed on them. And so a lot of people are dying in their homes by now, or if they're out on the street, dying just suffocated by the ash or burned by it. You can imagine it would be hard to breathe in a bunch of ash and pumice. But then the worst part is still yet to come on the morning of the 25th. Which is when the column collapses and a surge of incredibly hot gas and rocks hits Herculaneum first. People are killed instantly from the thermal shock. It's a thousand degree heat. It melts the skin and the muscles from their bodies and it's just skeletons left. They didn't even have time to react. There are no facial expressions or anything. Everybody's just buried. Yeah, an earlier eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Avellino, uh, about 2,000 years before this one, um, had winds at 900 degrees Fahrenheit and at 240 miles per hour of this suffocating ash. It makes your brain boil and your flesh is vaporized and your blood is vaporized and they meld with this uh this volcanic ash to make a concrete or plaster-like coating on your bones. The groundwater in Herculaneum helped, too. That's why some of it was preserved. And this was just the first surge. There were multiple surges to follow. Herculaneum ends up being buried in 75 feet of volcanic debris. Herculaneum is completely buried, but Pompeii is not. There are still surges left to hit it, and lapilli and ash are still falling and burying Pompeians in their home. A lot of them are suffocating because no one can breathe anymore. The Fill- first surge to hit Pompeii basically kills anyone who's left in the city. Right. But it's followed by these subsequent surges that continue to coat the city, but everyone is is dead by then. And even some people who managed to get outside the city walls were hit by the pyroclastic surge. It's the volcano's third surge, but it's the first one to hit Pompeii, which is the next morning. This whole thing lasted 19 hours. And so at the end of it all, Pompeii is buried under pumice stones and ash 19 to 23 feet deep, which is 
bad for trying to rebuild the city. Emperor Titus declared it an emergency zone and offered funds. It's all very modern sounding, offers funds to help with cleanup and recovery. But there's not anything you can really do about a city buried under 23 feet of ash. So it's quickly, um, quickly forgotten. And lost. That fertile soil covers it and people start farming eventually and... um, no one really thinks about Pompeii. It disappears from the map <laughs> for about 1,700 years until the late 16th century when an architect named Domenico Fontana uh, discovers some of the ruins. And work at these archaeological sites in Pompeii and Herculaneum actually ends up being sort of the start of modern archaeology and some of the techniques we think about of modern archaeologists with the grid system and the little tools and um, methodically charting and removing artifacts. It didn't necessarily always go like that. (laughs) No. (laughs) In fact, the uh, early digging was pretty haphazard, and it wasn't until the 1860s when an Italian archaeologist named Giuseppe Fiorelli became the director and really kind of tightened up the operation. Before that, people had just been taking things, like taking artwork yeah. and cutting off frescoes and then framing it and sticking it in their living room. Like, the, hey, look what I got from Pompeii. The Queen of Naples helped sponsor the digs because she wanted some nice ancient <laughs> statuary for her for her home. So <laughs> it was just sort of, you know, free, cool, ancient stuff for the picking. Really intense excavation resumed after World War II. And uh, by 1997, it was declared a World Heritage Site. And there's actually still lots of Pompeii that hasn't been uncovered. Some of it they want to stay covered in general, but yeah. they did find lots of cool stuff when they were looking. Well, and, and they want some of it to stay covered because it, once it's exposed, obviously it's exposed to all of the things it's been protected from for years, you know, whether that's rain or other weather or just tourists walking around. <laughs> and touching things. So remember if you go that Pompeii is an <laughs> open-air museum and please stop touching everything. So what are some of the cool things they found in Pompeii? Well, the coolest thing that we were talking about earlier was the private homes yeah. because a lot of times when a civilization falls or is destroyed, what you'll find are the giant monuments. Yeah. And they did find some of that yeah, in Pompeii. There, there are plenty of temples and... Oh, sports fields, amphitheaters, uh, government buildings, public baths. Uh, you know, things that you, you would even find in modern cities because they're what make it 2,000 years. They're what people, you know, try to preserve and keep up. Um, but private homes, usually you don't find a 2,000-year-old house. No. Sarah and I were talking about if something happened to Atlanta, what they would <laughs> they would call our houses, because a lot of these have very descriptive names, like the House of the Golden Bracelet, based on... The House of the Silver Wedding. What's found in the mine would be the apartment of cat hair. And mine was, unfortunately, <laughs> the House of the Ceiling Mushroom, also due to the rain. So hopefully... And your landlord. Hopefully a volcano doesn't preserve this moment in time. But the houses in Pompeii were lovely, especially if you were wealthy, because they had these huge private gardens and courtyards, really elaborate frescoes, some of which were very erotic, which the king of Naples was not happy about. He had them hidden for years and years. Yeah, the the patron deity of um, Pompeii was Venus, so it's not too surprising that there were all these uh, suggestive... Very phallocentric art. (laughs) 
but we get a really great record of several centuries worth of domestic architecture from this time because some of the houses in Pompeii, especially the older, more lavish homes, are about 400 years old when they're destroyed. And a lot of them had modern conveniences, which might be surprising. Rooms were heated by hot air running through cavities in the walls, and there were spaces under the floors and hydraulic pumps that gave running water. And we also get some nice touches of um, the not-quite-so-luxurious life. Um, there are little inns catering to lower-class clientele. Uh, there's graffiti written on oh, a lot I love of the, the houses. Graffiti. The graffiti is awesome. <laughs> I read one thing that said the largely windowless fronts of the houses were like the perfect temptation for graffiti on the streets. But there was all kinds of stuff. Um, love, you know, little so-and-so love so-and-so and, uh, a debate between which is better, <laughs> blondes or brunettes. Um, and, even <laughs> gladiatorial announcements, which one was calling Celidus the Thracian the lady's choice. <laughs> well, well, Celidus. Yes. <laughs> and it's it's just really cool because most of that stuff doesn't last. When you're an archaeologist, you don't often get to see graffiti from the Roman Empire. Yeah, but it kind of humanizes the people who live there. And gives you an idea of daily life, which is, you know, interesting to people like us. How did people live in 79 AD? Now we know. So all of this, you know, maybe not so much the um, Pompeian graffiti, but the fancy houses, the frescoes, the mosaics, all of this really influences European taste, much like later archaeological excavations in Egypt would. Um, neoclassical revival kind of comes up, replaces the frilly oh, the Rococo. rococo. Yeah. Uh, we even have Marie Antoinette getting her Fontainebleau apartment decorated in a Pompeian style. And it became part of the quintessential grand tour to go and see Pompeii when you were doing your little European trip. And Vesuvius today is actually still a problem, yeah, which you, we didn't know. You might want to think before you make it part of your grand tour today. <laughs> <laughs> or um, if you're thinking of moving to Naples, maybe don't. So Vesuvius is a stratovolcano. It's tall and it's mountainous. And it's also on the edge of the Eurasian plate, which collides with the Africa plate quite often. And the last enormous subplanian eruption, not not quite the size of uh, Pompeii, but the last sizable eruption was in 1631. And after that, there were a few centuries worth of lava streams and just little bits of activity. Um, and the last relatively small eruption was in 1944. But this is kind of the scary part. For the past 25,000 years, and they can, they know this from, um, geological records. Right. Vesuvius has had these catastrophic Plinian eruptions on the scale of Pompeii nearly every 2,000 years. Pompeii was the last major eruption, AD 79, which Hmm, Katie was, and I were calculating this. It's <laughs> about 2,000 years 2, ago. 2,000 years ago. And three million people live in Naples today. And if evacuation was a problem in AD 79 Pompeii, I can't imagine what, what it would be like now. The scale of that would be today. They, ha they have drills and emergency procedures in place. And obviously our, um, geology knowledge is a lot more extensive. Right. And hopefully, We'd be able to get a sizable warning, but it's still 
a rather unsettling thought. Something to think about. Vesuvius is monitored around the clock by geologists, but it's it's still a little scary to think of a modern Pompeii. So don't be the house with cat hair if no. you are. Get your mushrooms <laughs> off the ceiling before they're preserved in time. So if you'd like to learn more about volcanoes and ancient history, head over to our homepage and check out the blog while you're at it at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not. Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship, just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.